Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm I'm pretty good, thank you. It has been a, a strange uh, past couple of days, though. The, the heat continues here and has had a lot of uh, psychological effects that are I haven't really dealt with in some time. But there is an interesting little neighborhood story, which I might just relay, because I think it says something poignant about not just the, the heat wave we're in at all, but the period of time we are in, in kind of contemporary culture. I uh, I heard my doorbell ring and I thought, well, I'm not expecting any um, packages or anything. And, I, you know, that little moment of curiosity, uh, kind of mid-morning, because it's so hot out, you know, you think, well, anybody really has got to have a good reason. Well, um, it's... Uh, a pest control guy from another a company that I don't use. It's uh, another another service, and he introduces himself as Albert, and uh, you know, mid forties Hispanic dude, and obviously concerned. And what he wanted to alert me to is that my neighbor across the street whose house he was working on he said she's not feeling very well and i said i don't i don't know he he supplied her name beverly and i i've only seen her a couple of times and uh i said you know we talked a little bit more it sounded maybe like a stroke or you know something and i said look i really appreciate you 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 telling me uh i must have been the only one you know home at, at that moment uh but it was a good thing that he rang the doorbell because eventually I spoke to my next door neighbor who hadn't been home then. And he knows uh, the woman. And because uh, I went over, I, I stopped by and I didn't get any response. And I thought, well, maybe she's resting, you know. But anyway, my immediate next door neighbor did follow through to a couple, over the next couple of days. And uh, he eventually on, on Monday morning found her dead. And um, so she wasn't feeling well and she probably should have gone into the ER or, but she's older. I'm not sure how old, but so the story winds up where I thought really the key to this was this dude, Albert, who was going out of his way to be really, you know, truly community minded you know, in ways that a lot of people talk about today. So I rang the company Terminex, because I wanted some message to get through to him that our community really valued his extra effort there, which to him, I think, was perfectly just normal, you know, and that was also part of the beauty, just the graciousness of it, graciousness of it. But if he hadn't told me, I wouldn't have told my neighbor, you know, so she might have been there for a, a few more days, you know. Uh, well, I could not get through to a human being at this uh, pest control company. It's much bigger than the, I use just a one man band sort of dude. And I just couldn't, I, I was spending 20 minutes and eventually I just thought, no, nah, I'm going to let it go. So here we've got this weird reversal of someone very human representing the company so beautifully on multiple levels. And yet the behind the scenes machinery is completely excluding human contact or making it enormously difficult. So anyway, I'm sorry to ramble on, but that was kind of, uh, I think the short answer is 
the, the sustained heat spell is uh, not to be uh, underestimated psychologically. I don't think that was a ramble. I think that was a great story about humanity poking through whatever you call this 2023 late capitalist AI uh, outsourced malaise that we're all in right now. It is funny how humans still poke through, not to make too egregious of an extreme example, but I'm almost reminded of the work of somebody like Viktor Frankl, who wrote, you know, great books about being in concentration camps and how the people who survived weren't the strongest. They were the people who were able to keep their mind through the whole thing, physically strong. I mean, and I don't mean to compare where we're at now to that at all, but the idea of humanity poking through <clears throat> is really beautiful in its own way. I went to go get a haircut for my new job and I walked in, <laughs> I walked into the uh, supercuts and the woman uh, who was working there, only one of them, it was very early in the morning because I get up early and I, I get all my stuff done early. She said, oh, we're not actually open yet. And I said, oh, sorry. She said, yeah, the sign is broken. So it's always says open, but we're not. I said, yeah, that's fine. And she says, actually, let me just sweep up and I can I can get you. No worries. And she's older. I asked her how long she'd been cutting hair, and she said that she got her certificate in 1964. So she'd been doing it for, for quite some time. Wow. And I sit down. You'll love this. I sit down. She asks me what I want to do with my hair. I tell her. We suss out all the details, length, all that kind of stuff. And then she gets to cutting. And you know the best part about getting a haircut is the conversation. Being a hairstylist is as much about being able to talk as it is about being able to cut hair. And the first thing she says is, so my brother-in-law, he's got schizophrenia. And I think, oh, let's go. Let's go. What about your brother-in-law with schizophrenia? She said, they've got him living out in the woods now and he's doing really well. And I thought about our jail talk about ah. our, putting people out in the woods, getting them closer to nature, that kind of thing. So we had this really good talk that went all over the place, of course, as conversations do. I talked about Gus and she talked about her great grandchildren and we just got on really, really well. But the overall theme of it was about this schizophrenic brother-in-law and how, you know, she told me, uh, she's like, you know, I just don't think God wants us, some of us to be out here with all this noise all the time. And I said, yeah, I agree. I think you've nailed it. So again, little bits of human communication out there, right? It's, it's still not as, uh, bleak and desolate as you might think if your interactions are restricted to the digital well it it is curious though that uh these moments do stand out i mean it is to the yeah. point where, where where we are grateful for them and i i think that's a terrific thing and it, it doesn't really matter you know whether i think that's terrific or bad because it just it's it is what it is and it might it might 
be something that we're just so lucky to uh, to ever experience. Really, we just we don't know. We don't have a good standard, good understanding of of the psychosphere to know. Well, what 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 would be fair to expect? You know, and and also, I think we have a very hard time seeing our own standards for our own behavior. Um, but and I think you know, in, in last episode, I really mentioned that one of the big changes for me to in the last two years, certainly, but the sense of the importance of personal ethics, and and really seeing that as a unifying and integrative part of self personality and all the all philosophies therefore that it's not just a subset you know i mean who i don't know when i had a chance to study philosophy i thought well i want to study metaphysics not ethics ethics sounds really you know boring and now i just don't think of that that way at all and i think that um part of what that beautiful story that very legato story of you interacting with this woman cutting your hair, which is a beautiful shared activity, you know? There's just something very ceremonial and wonderful about that. But I think just in, there was a kind of emblematic nature to that. She wasn't there, but your rendition of it was so vivid and full and relaxed and, and textured that I felt that she was there, which is what great storytelling and, and just great communication is. And that's, I think, an example of the emblematic process of, of really, it's witness to itself. It's a manifestation of itself. It needs no explanation. And if it were to need an explanation is, you know, the old saying about jazz goes, well, you'll never understand it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of, a shibboleth or, 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 you know, password, uh, divide sheep from goats sort of word there. Um, but that was really beautiful. And I think that, um, those moments, well, they always depend on a certain kind of generosity of spirit and a certain bit of risk-taking, I think. Um, but also probably some magnetic uh, intuition between people that suggests, hey, it's a, you know, I think, and I think that's how we often communicate with dogs, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I was, I was in Chris Sacknesson mode. I had that thought because I do have a tendency, or I should say I did have a tendency to respond to Okay, the beginning of the conversation, my brother-in-law has schizophrenia and they've sent him out to the woods. My first response would be to say something like, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry to hear that" or but instead, no, meet it on its own terms and ask it the real question. So how is that working? Does he like it? <laughs> <laughs> like don't don't make a value judgment about things but like i'm i was it was a cool conversation to me and i wanted to tell you about it uh because because i do feel like i'm i'm applying those principles now 
like yeah let's let's talk about it whatever you want to talk really, about i'm really pleased about that david because it you know coming off the <clears throat> the big road trip which was uh in total you know like crossing the country there was you know i shared a lot of the interactions with strangers and a lot of just really being able to value those moments of connection all the more because of all of the technological mediated noise and the virtuality of, of what we've been calling last time the superfice, you know? Mm-hmm. Normally, at this point in the show, I would ask you for your band and your aphorism, but I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if we flipped it around. Can I get my imaginative challenge first? I would oh. like a, a few oh, more minutes yeah. to, to, to think about it. because no. we. We've gone on some really good, but really extended conversations before I've gotten to my challenge. Yeah. And, okay. And no, no. I, I think, think I think it would be cool to have just like a, a full hour to to think about it. I, I I look, I agree with you. That's totally fair. Okay. Well, uh, there's a lot of latitude here, but I think you could say that you're back in storytelling mode in in some Uh, genre of your choosing. But here's the premise. A once close male friend from much earlier in your life reappears and needs to share a very personal and peculiar experience. He says that on three consecutive occasions, when a sudden surge of horniness or maybe just the need for a bit of distraction or animal indulgence triggered a brief dabble in porn, some unsettling physical and mental symptoms emerged. Not quite a headache, not quite nausea, but a kind of definite distress, noise, unease, the result withdrawal, low-grade tension, and a hint of anger. Circumstances don't allow you to give your old friend the response you'd like in the moment, but you end by suggesting a follow-up chat soon. The next day, however, a buddy you see much more often shares almost the exact same experience, word for word in part. What's the story? What do you think? What do you do? That's your imaginative challenge. Any questions? No, but it's really funny because I know who listens to the show. Not everybody, but I know a few people. And when they hear that challenge, they're they're going to uh, they're going to laugh. Uh, not because me or them have been having problems with porn, but we no. today today we made a joke that works with with all of this. So Synchron- funny, funny synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always uh, I hope always lots of little uh, facets and things to explore and um, or uh, completely. Uh, you know, not deal with in these. Yeah. So I, I, hope I saw, and, and I shared this with my group chat because you know how on your, do you have an iPhone? I do. 
So, you know, on iPhone, when you swipe left, it gives you Apple news and people news and all the tabloid stuff. I shared this yesterday because <laughs> the headline made me laugh. It said, Terry Crews, you know who Terry Crews is? The uh, you know, the big muscular black actor. Right. Okay. He said uh, that at one point his porn addiction had gotten so bad that he resented his children because they distracted him from the porn. Oh, man. And I, I sent that to the group chat and I was like, bro, how down bad do you have to be <laughs> to be masturbating that much <laughs> that you resent your kids? I've just never, to me, I don't know about you. This might hold true for you too, but to me, pornography has always just been a tool. You know, when you get that kind of, uh, when you be, start to become crazy because of not having sex for a certain amount of time, you just, you watch it release and then you're back to being normal again. I don't understand why some people exist in that world for days or weeks at a time. I feel like you'd get sore, wouldn't you? Look, you know, there's just so many things to say about this this topic. But what you made me think of, which is kind of odd, but I think also sort of wonderful, the British author A.S. Byatt, who I, I hadn't really read anything of hers. I discovered her very recently. I had to teach a, a class at UNLV that wasn't my class. It was just last minute. And that was the, the topic. And I kind of, I mean, I've heard of her name, of course. But, and we may have discussed this on the show at some point because I only, her name does come up in my mind. She wrote a wonderfully scathing attack on Harry Potter uh, which I really enjoyed. But she once made a really interesting comment about reading Tolkien. And I have to say that personally, I don't, as good a writer as she is, I think she's a wonderful writer. She's not anybody's idea of an attractive woman, I don't mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to the comment that follows because she is describing rereading Tolkien again uh, when she uh, she was housebound with a sprained ankle or something, and it was raining, and she just thought, "I'll start reading." To and her, the good thing that she found was that reading Tolkien completely distracted her from any thoughts of sex. And I just <laughs> I thought that was so wonderful. That I mean, first of all, she's not the kind of I don't know. I'm unfairly judging by appearance. And I apologize for that. It's just wonderful when she was writing about being obsessed or fixated or needing to get away from sex. And then the means of doing that was reading J.R.R. Tolkien. I love <laughs> the whole thing. That is really funny. That is counterpoint to that. Some of the biggest sluts that I know love Tolkien. So, but maybe that's maybe that's the only way they can calm down. That's a great story title, man. That's a great story title. That's like, that's like rock and roll and Nashville all in one with a, with some fetamine, you know, oomph to it too. Uh -huh. I like it. Uh -huh. All right. Do you, I know. do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I do. Okay. The band is called The Clade 
which is a biological term of unity and connection, shared ancestorness. I'll leave listeners to follow that up. But it's another kind of biological designation of, of social unity. And their album is called Infestation, Sissies versus Bullies. Here's the deal. The band doesn't really exist except in a video game, which is a hybrid of single shooter and team treasure hunt across multi-level obstructions. Participants play by decoding messages in the band's songs and manipulating ring and music tones via their phones. Special terms within the game are clade and tarnish, the verb tarnish. Goal number one is to find members of your clade and to tarnish members of other clades. The setting is Neutertown, a garish, hyper-real Lego Barbie world, where the two main industries are the bully factory and sissy engineering. Some unknown espionage interest has infiltrated both facilities and to perverse effect. Quality control at the bully factory can't account for the increase in sissies, not just defective bullies, but sissies. Meanwhile, AI at sissy engineering continually develops plans for almost super bullies. Something is wrong in Neutertown. Decode the music and play along to find the secret of the infestation. So that's the idea. It's so cool. Wrapped in a game. That's so cool. That is so awesome. For the next episode, do you think you could pivot from bands to video games? I would love to see what you would do with a video game. Oh, okay. I'll, 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 I certainly, I'll, I think that's a good challenge. I think it's yeah, just a gift. Yeah, yeah, just good. I'll take that give it on. a shot. I like that as a segue between the two. Uh, I like because that. I'm with you. That was so vivid and riveting and, and cool. I just couldn't help but think, man, I want to see Chris do, you know, what is his version of a sword and sorcery fantasy role-playing video game? Right, you know, right. Like, I'll, I, I hear that, and I, I, I will follow that last point too of of trying to look at some established genres that are are clearly working, as if that were kind of the parameters for the brief, as well as things that are just, I don't know, just things that occur to me that may not have any audience at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a video I, I like game. Both sides. It's a video game where you have two rocks. And you look at the rocks for three hours <laughs> and then you win. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to sell that one. Well, you know, you it could be the graveyard of video game pitches, you yeah. know, things like that. Were just things that like you wonder what what, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was yeah. someone thinking? Yeah, I love that idea, Dave. I think that's really great. That's cool. great. Cool. What is your aphorism for today all right i think people will see the underlying structure here of of it's it's part of uh well it's a response to a tool that we talked about uh 
sometime in the past of taking the formula, the formulaic structure of, of certain sentences and phrases and rejig them. And so my rejigging is only two things in life are certain, death and taxonomies. Mm. And I, I, I was, I, I, I had a little smile on my face when that occurred. I think that's not just a play on words or uh, following the tool of rejigging, uh, you know, the structure, the rhythm, the musicality, and as well as the semantics of a sentence. But being able to be led by that, being able to trust in a hidden under underground river, you know, that's going through that phrasing and then seeing where that leads. And then I think uh, taxonomies and the notion of, hierarchies and categories has been just so on my my thinking but i i have a new uh uh kind of element to add to this which is not really an aphorism but it's got to be an elocution uh challenge but it actually has to say something semantically sound uh as if it's kind of in like a billboard message if you like so the one I came up with this time is fresh fish flesh served without the smell. Mm. And I don't know what, I, I haven't really got a name for what this genre is, but I'm working with it as a, a, a cognition and memory uh, stimulant. And I think it's really interesting because it gets to that deep, uh, onomatopoetic musical nature of, of, of the spoken word and how that influences then the written word. But it it gets you thinking about, well, it gets you performing syntax. Yeah, fresh fish flesh served without the smell. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, I yeah. like that. I really like death and taxonomies. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That I, feels like I, the, I that feels like a that. your your comeback short story collection could be called that. Yeah. Um, all right. To get into the show, Chris did not send me a text this week. No, he didn't send me a text. He sent me an email. Because he had thoughts, many of them. And I'm going to read some of them as we've been doing for the past few shows. I feel like it's been working pretty well as a guide for the shows. I'm going to read the uh, pieces of it and then pause to talk. Here are the first three paragraphs. Trap. Two rapid adaptation psychosis compare with osmotic shock the biological trauma we see in many creatures dealing with the intersection of fresh and salt water millions of brine shrimp survive situations like the great salt lake billions die we've been making the case that photography is the key to understanding modernity to our knowledge, no one else has placed this great an emphasis. We've pointed to the mass pervasion of the image 
as the major consciousness-altering innovation of the last 150 to 200 years, directly in evolutionary line with the Gutenberg printing revolution, but with far greater reach and impact. Everyone thinks they can, quote, understand, end quote, an image at the basic literacy level, and whether they do or not, they have a perspective, a point of view. Many people can't construct consistently operational sentences in any of the world's 10 major languages, but they can take a selfie. The strange egalitarianism of the glance. And while so many obsess on the power of the internet and social media, what would these technical innovations be without the trafficking of image? The reproducible, portable, instantly distributed nature of the image in any of its ever more protean forms has created a new realm of reality in direct conflict with physical presence and attention. We've hypnotized ourselves out of the continuum of life with final force. Some phantom upload of identity into virtuality is the only fantasy left. So that's a good recap, right? Is there anything you want to add to that? I feel like that's a really good recap of the past. Yeah, no, I, I think that is. That's what I was intending, and I'm, I'm glad that you think so, and I hope readers do too. Uh, there are many, many spin-off wonderful little eddies and cul-de-sacs that we could pursue and probably still will. And clearly there's there's more to be done in terms of integrating photography into its extensions, uh, you know, namely film, television, all those other executions on and on and on. But in a way, I think that we we kind of uh, we've made the point that we wanted to where this started and where image appears as a word, I think there's something connotatively, uh, at least, but I would say qualitatively uh, important about that um, in contrast to pictures. You know, I think image has a different level of uh, authority and uh, currency. And I think that it does have a strange kind of um, psychoeconomic power. So now I think that was a pretty good windup of, of, of where that goes without saying that we're going to uh, necessarily not tease out some issues as, as you know, as they appear. Because I think there's many, many more things to say, you know. Well, here is where I get really excited. Whatever political position one takes re-COVID, let's go. <laughs> this is Chris. Weird how a virus has any political implications at all. What we've seen over the last three years is a micro laboratory of social adaptation on fast forward. True. Remember that the key change photography has introduced equals altering the cultural sense of time, slow-mo, freeze frame, time lapse. Seemingly overnight, businesses closed, many forever. Our already broken education system was put on life support. A highly specialized segment of the workforce was prioritized more fully, and one of the most complex and curious 
and one of the most complex and curious of global human creations, the mask, became a brutally simplistic symbol of capitulation to ideology of a very sudden and transitory kind. Just how fast can millions to billions of people be manipulated? What government slash corporate slash secret order wouldn't want to know that? Chris, this is exactly, you've hit on it. And it's interesting <laughs> that you got to it through photography. I think this is a perfect way to think about it. But the the control of the speeding up and slowing down of time is just as important as the actual images that are being presented, how quickly these things can be done, how fast everybody, when you think about what got people to the point where they thought that the government should force a shot onto infants or the parents of those infants should be put in jail, how quickly they got to that is through photographs, and I would also argue tweets, but little mini epics that people experience on a day-to-day -day basis that allows them to live 150 years in three days to get to these insane conclusions. It's, it's really incredible the way that happened. Well, certainly the speed, and that's why I started off with this notion of trap. I, I, I don't really like acronyms, in, but I just thought it was so perfect of too rapid adaptation psychosis. And I think that we we continually can, can look at uh, the modern era in terms of we've chosen to look at it through photography and the reproducible image, but all of the major uh, technological innovations seem to uh, have some weird things in common in terms of, uh, they're brilliant examples of, of what Edward T. Hall uh, talked about in terms of extensions, human extensions, and how they begin to take on a life of their own and have their own evolutionary uh, stream. And someone like a writer like J.G. Ballard took that idea and thought, well, yes, there's going to be, and Philip K. Dick to some extent, there's going to be some psychological uh, implications to these technological extensions. But what the weird thing I think that happened on the COVID stage, the, this huge global forum, uh, was the psychological aspects of technological extension going social on such a mass scale so quickly, mm. you know, it completely blew out for me any idea of any of the theories of the kind of the doomed field of memetics, which we've talked about, which is, mm -hmm. you know, idea contagion and, uh, it's a fascinating field, but it has no sort of real substance to it or hasn't been able to generate any kind of, you know, scaffolding to build anything on. But we have been through and we may be still going through what looks to me like an enormously orchestrated social experiment with, with motivations that I can see being completely clear and reasonable in a sort of sinister sense. 
um, but I understand them. I mean, as a plot line for a novel, a speculative fiction novel, I, I could just, I get it, you know, I get it completely. Uh, it almost seems a little pat, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is funny that the closer you get your actual sinister plot to match a pat cliche genre plot, the less people would believe it because they've seen it in movies and they associate movies with fiction. Um, yeah, I think, well, what you've said here is so interesting to me because it puts the invention of the photograph on one end and the COVID mask on the other. And I think that the speeding up of time is so interesting in that it reminds me of those calendars you'll see of all of human existence and then where technology really, uh, well, I should say modernism came into effect and it's just this time, it's like, you know, it's 30 minutes on the 31st of the calendar in terms of human existence. But that to me seems like that 150 to 200 year stretch of the invention of the photograph to COVID. There was the Spanish flu in there, obviously, but photography was more contained. Uh, but COVID, the, the three-year nature of it, the fact that it's bookended by three very short years that were so uh, wildly impactful, I think that there's something to the selfie and the mask, right? Beautiful. It's almost, right? It's almost as if the... Uh, if you wanted to look at it without thinking about the virus or whatever, it was almost as if this complete shift from the selfie to the mask wanted to occur. So I like that point a lot. Well, it, it's, you know, I didn't, uh, I mean, you and I have talked about the whole um, COVID phenomenon from a you know a, a cultural point of view and I think that's it's kind of hard to avoid it's one of the biggest things that I I think either of us can recall across generational differences uh but what I was sort of thinking about was hearkening back to last episode uh a nightmare that I related in the dream segment. And it was really an official nightmare, which I haven't had in quite some time, thank goodness. I've had, and I've, the dreams that I'm going to talk about tonight show are on a different register entirely. But in my nightmare, there was a new pandemic, which was a kind of catatonic depression and despair mm -hmm. uh, that really brought a quick end. You know, um, I fortunately woke up before the end. But I was thinking about, well, and I love the connection of the mask and the selfie. I think that's a really peculiar uh, way of getting people to see that from, I mean, there's an interesting oscillating dynamic there. And one of the things that I will say just before, I really want to hear just your take totally, but I've been thinking a lot about the notion, the westernized notion of the mask 
and how we often think of that as concealment, you know? And yet the sacred, magical, theatrical traditions of, of yeah. masks around the world, whether they be secular or full-on sacred religious ceremonial, is all about uh, creating a character, you know? It, it isn't hiding or just, I mean, that's not really the right way to think of it, you know? There, are, I, there is that element right. of mask as an idea, sure. And I think you could say a masquerade, masquerade ball, uh, and that's still an expression of character. I won't even go with that. I think that for the first time I saw these nasty, basic, just completely ineffectual uh, saliva sort of, you know, foul mask things uh, become truly just outright disguises, you know, and it just visually it it concerned me a great deal i also on my trip and said i don't know if i i came across a, a, like a big box of discarded old masks i don't know why that i'm not going to say who but i don't know why the people in question would keep those around but there were mice living in them and i just threw the whole i just this is disgusting you know so that's a, a bit of a ramble there. But yeah, let me let me I want to hear more about the selfie in the mask, because I think that is a beautiful, beautiful crossroads. Well, there are a couple of ways to look at it the way that I see. The first is this archetypal metaphysical battle of forms where the the selfie or or the creation of the mask necessitated the selfie thinking about it backwards like that so the idea that we needed to get to a point where we were all faceless needed a point where we were very overfaced the second bit it could be this as well is that the mask itself represents a kind of compliance. But compliance is not the word that people who use masks would use for their mask usage. They would say that it's about being caring. So it's interesting then thinking about it from this angle, that an era of narcissism and taking tons of selfies of yourself morphed into a way to take a picture of yourself while quote unquote eliminating the self and showing your inner value, right? So the selfie with the mask becomes a, a portrait, a selfie, if you will, of your, your goodness, of how much you care about other people which is an interesting iteration although not functionally different from what a selfie in a bikini or if you're a guy with your shirt off is doing but i guess it depends on whether you feel like the mask is is a reaction to the selfie or the a mask is the natural progression of the selfie 
And I'm, I think I'm more inclined to think of it as a natural progression of it or a phase of the selfie. Well, I, I've got a couple of, of lines of thought here. The first thing I was thinking about was my phone has face ID lock, right? Mm -hmm. And I seem to recall, uh, I, I won't check it now, but I seem to recall that um, the, you can uh, program it to accept you with a mask on. <laughs> But you can't to get it to deal with you with sunglasses on. I've I've been through. I fought with it like fifty million times, and I think that's so odd because I mean when you think about it, they, those man, what's talking? You know, uh, those masks are far more uh, deceptive, distorting, and or just you know obscuring than sunglasses are. I mean, they're half your face. You know, uh, I, I just find that really kind of amusing. And I think that's an interesting relationship to the selfies, which are always, of course, taken uh, by the phone. But uh, the thing that still gets me about the masks is how quickly they were taken up mm -hmm. and how quickly and, they went away well you know i still see them every, you know you still i mean no that's that's totally that that's true but that's that's like seeing uh women with beehive hairdos right i mean some people will have those for the rest of their lives those are vestigial like cultural uh, uh, -huh. uh attachments but in, in terms of in mass culturally, there was a sequence, I swear to God, it was it was three weeks of before the masks really became a thing. Because I can remember in El Paso, when I first went into a Whole Foods and saw people wearing masks, and then it took about three weeks of grocery store trips and seeing more and more and more. And finally it got to the point where I was the only person in the store with no mask on. And I thought, Oh, this looks, this is, this is pretty weird. So about three weeks. And I would say three weeks to three months for them to be gone. They were there and then they weren't for the most part, besides yeah. the, the detritus, the, 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 psychos who have who really latched on to that whole mask thing i saw a guy um what was he doing he was uh, i don't know some guy who was working at a restaurant or something that i got my food from and he had one of those big like conical masks i don't know if that's the newest evolution in mask science that's going to protect him <laughs> all these people think that they have some horrible uh, autoimmune disease that's going they'll die if they get bacteria in them or whatever um anyway so well, i see it, your it, point it, but yeah it it, it it can harmonize with any kind of uh neurosis or psychosis or delusion or you know it, it just it's an all-purpose idea it just is so beautiful from well, these people thought these people, these people really thought throughout covid and I believe them. I don't think they were being cynical about it. I thought they were, I think they were genuinely scared. 
these people thought that guys like me who just had very rational, reasonable questions about what they were doing, they thought that we were trying to kill them. You know, to them, the world became bacterial and dangerous. And guys like me weren't just people who had a difference of opinion. I was a vessel for death and disease. <laughs> I yeah, was a beautiful Manichaean, you know, theatrical idea. There's, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, that's what I mean. It's really all purpose. It's, it's working across some really deep archetypal Jungian mythos sort of levels, but it's also grounding into very contemporary, uh, not just metaphor, but, but real uh, physical scenarios. So it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous bit of psyops craftsmanship in a, in a sense. Uh, I mean, if you, if you looked at that from a story um, point of view, but I think that there's another side to it. Um, because there were, and not to dismiss how important uh, school closures and lockdowns and wearing masks and those sorts of things. I've got, I remember the glove thing, uh, but there's also the, the vaccination sort of program, mm-hmm. which I think if we just step back for a moment and I, I can think of, of three really uh, pretty significant people in my life who were absolutely adamant that they were not going to be first to, you know, try out some new vaccine because whether they were familiar with Terrence McKenna's work directly, they supported the idea that, look, Drugs need some some proving time. And, Seven years. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it really is, it's too suspicious. There's too much money to be made. They had a whole constellation of what I felt were very rational reasons, which I completely supported. And in very short order, they reversed those positions entirely. So my request to, to uh, listeners who... Um, may have very different views about the whole COVID situation to really hear what Dave and I are talking about in, in larger principle terms of how massive social change can occur in a very short period of time, what forces are involved in, what are the manifestations of the change and what are the consequences of it? Because there was a lot at stake in being able to manipulate whole societies like a machine. I mean, there's that's terrifying. And with the rise of, of, of a super billionaire class, you know, you remember the days when millionaires were, were pretty cool? No, no, no. You have to be not just a billionaire, you have to be a super billionaire. And now we have this emergence of AI. And it, it really, really does disturb me how quickly, in my view, reason was lost during the COVID. Yes, yes, phenomenon. yes, yes. That is, that is my major issue as well. I would say that in the same way that I'm able to understand that some people thought that people who didn't want to get the shot were selfish or wanted to kill them. 
I would like them to take the empathetic step and understand that we have been begging for three years for everybody to please just put their thinking caps on for a few minutes and try to understand that this might be a very bad idea. The same companies that flooded the market with opium and countless pharmaceuticals that ended in billions of dollars worth of lawsuits, they might have an incentive to push a product on you that is not effective and worse, might actually be detrimental to your health. And we've just been trying to tell that to you, uh, dear listener, who might be more more COVID-minded. I don't want anybody to get hurt by the vaccine, although many people have. Many people have died. Many young people have died who didn't have to die. Uh, LeBron James's son just had cardiac arrest today or yesterday. Um, what, What they didn't realize they were doing, and I saw this immediately when COVID hit, Because I saw a a statistic that said, you know, if we enact these lockdowns, um, 3 million children in the world who are suffering from from hunger issues are going to die from supply chain issues that will result from these. And I remember sharing that. And everybody rejected it out of hand. And I remember this, this older woman, she was in her, her 70s, I believe. She said, well, what about us older people? Do our lives not matter? And at that moment, a chill came over me and I began to realize that this could be a large-scale ritual sacrifice of the young for the old, right? It's a yeah. disease that, that, that kills older people. And it does. COVID is a real thing that really does kill older people and old people should take precautions to not get it because it could be fatal. The same as the flu. What COVID does not do is harm the young. It doesn't hurt people usually under the age of 50, especially if you're in good health. Uh, and it has an entirely negligible uh, effect on infants, children, teenagers, even up into the mid twenties, but the vaccines do. And the vaccines became man mandated. And what makes me so angry that I have to kind of calm down and get a grip on it is that a lot of young people who had a lot of life ahead of them died because of the cowardice of boomers and old people and everybody who was scared for their their precious life that they already got to live. And I just hope that when I'm that age and I'm put in that position where like, hey, here's the thing, it's very risky to you. Uh, Do you think that this 15-year-old should take a risk so that you're safe? I would hope that I would have the courage and, I don't know, just the mental fortitude to say, well, obviously not. Obviously, that 15-year-old should should live more risk-free than I do. And that's not what we saw. We saw old people, obese people, people who eat nothing but shit for their entire lives, demanding that healthy people kill themselves to keep them safe. And I will be a little forever bitter about that. 
I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, 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 we get, we get, we heard the bitterness there. And I think that mm-hmm. that's important uh, for you to vent. I, I kind of knew that was coming. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it still astonishes me how, uh, well, you're very passionate about that. And I think that that's, um, that's the, you know, a lot of people are. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a fascinating and really necessary uh, cultural um, investigation to have. And it, I don't know if we'll ever really, you know, really understand it. And I, I wonder, you know, if something else is going to emerge too quickly and subsume our memories and concentration about that. Well, it's not I, mine. It's not mine. I will well, never, I will never forget. I will never forget that, you know, obese uh, uh, wastes of space sacrifice babies so that they could keep living their pathetic lives. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. All right. David's going to church on us. He really, really has. Um, well, oh, right. let me get let me get to this. Uh, this these last few paragraphs, because these are really good. And it brings the the brine shrimp back into it. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, to bookend the brine shrimp analogy, I'm drawn back to the Patti Smith concert at the Henry Miller Library in Big Sur in September 2021. Listeners will remember this if you've been listening from the beginning. We got this in real time. Here we had a pop culture survivor, a senior American avant-garde artist, feminist, punk rebel against authority as sole performer in a place known for humanist plus nature slash individual adventure of spirit. And this was the first and only time I've had to present a vaccination card, which of course could have been completely bogus. No one wore masks on the shuttle bus or in the Redwood Grove where the event was held. Of the 25 or so people I pointedly chatted with, I'm the compulsive chatter where Dennis Hopper was the compulsive shooter slash uh, Shutterbug, only two had any idea of who Henry Miller was, and certainly not a deep cultural grasp of how his artistic efforts and spirit harmonize with Patty. Theirs was an entirely shorter-term sense of occasion and reason for being there, and they all exemplified a rather vintage quality in that with some noticeable and acknowledged self-consciousness. It was a beautiful evening, Patty did get feisty with the crowd in one great moment, but this was a gracious and prosperous Zinfandel and Gouda group. They might not have known how they might not have known much about the literary and humanist science culture history of Big Sur, but they were well behaved, yet they sure had criticisms to make of a New York Times, MSNBC, NPR reported country concert going on at the same time in Atlanta. Imagine people communing to listen to music during COVID. The thing that horrified me was how utterly profound, as in, and this is bolded, unquestioned, their hypocrisy was, and so genteel and cultured. It was in large part Georgia versus coastal California, wine and cheese versus hamburgers and beer. That's the other really big thing about this, the elitism of the COVID moment. The idea that we were all just too stupid to trust the experts and do what they told us. 
to I'm me, not going to go on another rant. I'm not going to do it. No, no, but I'm <laughs> glad that that resonates because it, it's something, it's taken obviously a while for this to really percolate through uh, my whole thinking. It's been coming in and out, but it just seemed to come to the, the fore with that nightmare. Uh, to me, this is the, 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 the mechanism that is most distinctive about the phenomenon, that it this is one uh, substrate that the that it needed to seize onto and start sending out tendrils from. You know, it needed to to like a fungi. You know, it needed to spread from there or a slime mold. You know, it needed to have classism and that edge into the socio political world in order to go huge time that's what it needed it did it really did and i think that well you see it in this idea of trust the science and trust the experts because whenever that phrase was i feel like if i'm talking about an expert in a field that i that i really appreciate books film music philosophy i feel like i can name a few of those experts and i feel as though i'm conversant in the field at least but theirs was a kind of unquestioned acceptance of expertiseism that was meant to represent the kind of unquestioned respect that they too demanded. Unquestioned, and I might add, unearned. Well, this is the direct connection uh, to our discussions of the impact of photography, the, the new image of image and its power, and the notion that image alone is content enough I mean, that's what expertise and authority has become. It's become a complete uh, facade. I mean, you even see on major mainstream news shows the caption, a panel of experts, you know? I mean, really? Well, and then they might, they're named, but you don't have any idea what their backgrounds really are usually. And it's very, very dubious how... And that's been going, that's really been building for quite some time. That started in my experience, I think, with, uh, well, it's the, the, the beginnings of television, you know? That was a real absolute staple from the get-go, like the quiz show. So it's very, you absolutely get that. And that then reinforces the whole social media sphere of everybody being an expert. This kind of, well, everybody's got an opinion, you know? And it's just, it becomes, it's like a perfect storm, you know? It really does seem, if you, if we think of it as a psyops, and I'm not saying it's a purely just psychological phenomenon, I'm not saying that, there's a real virus, yada, yada, yada. But I'm saying as a complete pandemic experience created right. by some centralized, even if a completely, uh, well, certainly clandestine to some extent, but 
contained group, the shadow mm-hmm. puppet ministry. Well, it, yeah, it's, uh, you know, COVID is to the pandemic as LSD is to MK Ultra. Oh, I like that. That's a good connection. That's a good connection. Yeah, I like that. You know, another thing that I think is really interesting about uh, the, well, the 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 left-leaning people who seem to really celebrate COVID and kind of wish it would stay as a kind of ongoing religion, those sort Psychopaths. of Psychopaths. Psychopaths. Yeah, they're, they're a little bit on the extreme nutty front. But the thing that, um, well... I don't know. There's just almost too much or, or really nothing that fun to say about them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I'll just, I, I, I didn't, I the actually disdain, the, like the, the disdain that I feel for people who are still on that train, who yeah. have ignored all the, all the, uh, you know, the breaking news and, and the, the evidence that they were wrong about certain things. There are some people who've gone completely silent about it and other people who have continued on as though nothing has changed. Um, I feel, I mean, I, I don't even know what to say about that anymore. I mean, I feel like you are a representation of a thinking person who has uh, made his way through these three years without any kind of extremism, without any kind of uh, uh, vitriol or nastiness. Uh, and you've you've come out here in 2023 uh, in a place that I, I think is correct. Um, and I use that as a, as a counter to those people who are just like, man, oof still people out here who aren't aren't vaccinated it's like yeah people's hearts are exploding i don't i don't know how much more clear this can get to you that that that, that you might have been wrong about literally everything that you've been talking about since 2020 so i don't know yeah well uh, i look i'm down with that and i i think that what i was going to say about some of of these people uh which is another thing that kind of unifies them and which just sort of surprises me because you and I have kind of good feelings about uh, Fortrian subjects and conspiracy theories. I don't know how you could be a writer and not be interested in conspiracy. I, it's just. Yes. Thank I, you. I, I think that uh, it, it just it, it's a positive. It, it's not saying that you're going to go with every one of them, but but as a category, it's just interesting. It's so fun. It's so yeah. fun. It's magnetically fun. And yet, and yet, that phrase alone is used by the people I'm thinking of in a completely pejorative and and contained sense of dismissal. Mm -hmm. And I just Mm -hmm. think, well, I'm sorry, that's just not working for me at all. I mean, that might be self-explanatory to you, but no, you know. (laughs) that's just that's so wrong that is so wrong and uh well that doesn't need any explanation it's a conspiracy theory i yeah so yeah and it's fucking cool like are they just anomalous shapes on mars or are they remnants of a lost civilization uh what did we go to the moon or did stanley kubrick film it on a back lot in la was jfk shot 
by Lee Harvey Oswald, or was it a massive conspiracy of the CIA and and Cuban uh, uh, rebel fighters and uh, maybe the mafia or a combination of all those? What's as a storyteller, if you're not drawn to conspiracy, then you're not really a storyteller. No, you're a a fucking loser. (laughs) Do something else quickly. Do something else. Yeah, you can go. You can. Nobody gives a shit if a fucking accountant believes in conspiracy theories or not. Or I used the wrong word there. Not believes in them, but has fun with them, entertains them. Right. As a storyteller. How do you think, what do you think Thomas Pynchon thought about COVID? I'm waiting for the Thomas Pynchon COVID novel. You know, I think he, he really deserves that honor. I think he, I think the writing community should appoint him with that challenge actually. Mm -hmm. And that's not out of the question at all that he, you know, I, I would, I would really, yeah, I, I would line up to read that. Um, you know, I, I think he he deserves that shot, you know, so the speak. same way that uh, that Cormac McCarthy went out with uh, the passenger and Stella Maris. P- Pynchon's last novel is a 800 page COVID conspiracy novel. It would blow everything up. It he, would, he, he, he has though. to know that he has to know the, the power that he wields there to make a real cultural dent. Yeah. Well, I mean, said another way, how could he resist? I mean, I th- it's almost uh, it's almost pension esque, which and he deserves yeah. that. I think so. Yeah. I think that's uh, that is well. We'll see something. Although you know, I'm not convinced we'll see anything of interest at all. I really, I'm really not sure of that. I think that's another aspect mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the disease, the the larger social disease, the the experiment, uh, the experiment gone terribly wrong or beautifully right. I'm afraid mm-hmm. it's gone very much to plan. The uh, uh, the science fiction writer M. John Harrison uh, has a quote that I'm going to butcher, but he basically talks about how you should write whatever you want to write because they'll hate it now. And then they'll all be praising what you did 20 years from now. And that's definitely what a COVID novel of this time would be. It would be dismissed and panned and it would sell really, really, really well, but it would be 20. It's it's going to be about 20 years from now when people start to go, what, what was going on with that, with that COVID stuff? I think the only way it's going to go down uh, that would really have any potential for success or reach would be allegorically, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I just, I I think we could see, we could, it could be fairly, you know, one-to-one. I really think it could. Uh, But I think it needs that sort of, of distance Mm -hmm. because I just can't imagine. I think that's, that's where the, the phenomenon gets very peculiar because it's almost so boring. It just flattens everything out. It begins to stifle. It begins to create the kind of catatonia that I was, you know, my nightmare was about. Here's a, here's a question I don't have an answer for, but I want listeners to think about. 
if if people aren't willing to amend their opinions about political issues, COVID, conspiracy theory, uh, their identities, if they're not willing to do that because they have too much skin in the game, is the answer to try to remove that skin in the game? And if so, how? I don't know, but it's an interesting question. If you take away the chips that they've pushed in, can you make a stride forward? Oh, well, that is, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm still trying to come to terms with how you framed that. Uh, I don't know. I think that could be something that we could would follow up. And I, I would certainly be interested to hear what listeners have to say. And I, I when I you know was thinking about these notes, I had no idea. I knew I would push some buttons with you. And I got, I think I've, I got I've been that. triggered this evening. I've been triggered. Yeah. Well, I think you delivered on that with, and it's, it's, you know, I think some people are, you know, as you've known, some people are going to go, whoa, no way, you know, or just, geez, Dave is really in there, you know, hitting hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's really cool. And I think that, you know, this kind of forum and the kind of of community that we hope to build, people should feel more free to to be passionate and to take ethical stances and to, you know, have some points of view that maybe are in conflict, you know, we think we need to be happier in our scrappy phase, you know, a little bit scrappier, but happier because of that, you know, mm-hmm. and a little bit more uh, slingshot and decoder ring about the whole program. And maybe some of the, you know, the antagonism, the real vitriol, uh, would would change you know i i think it would i think that mm-hmm. people are so anxious uh about everything and i think that what we what we well most people would agree with i would suggest covid did a lot to make this more conflicted and divisive i don't think there's any question about that yeah yeah um, for sure but I think we could come back to, to your question. Uh, do you want to have another shot at rephrasing that or? Well, totally. I, I think that. If you've built your entire identity off of a certain point of view, which means that it would be massively uh, painful to change that opinion? Is there a way to change the chips that you've put into that argument instead of the argument itself, right? Like we move our arguments around to try to get to people who have built up an entire identity around disagreeing with you. And maybe it's the identity itself that needs to change. Okay, I'm glad you. I'm glad you, we had a second go with that. I think that clarified that. Well, I I like that as something to uh, take into uh, next week. Um, cool, cool. I think yeah. so, there are several different approaches to that, and also I think it would be important to to really um, for us both and and for our listeners to understand that that now really blows this up to a much larger sort of issue of identity values. 
opinions, deep beliefs uh, that really is, is applies across so many topics. And what we've been discussing tonight is really just one and a very peculiar, uh, explosive and expansive incident of, of fairly recent times. But I think this moves it into the larger area that uh, that I was that I think I was implicitly thinking about as an extension of oh no I yeah I got rapid that, yeah. change you know mm -hmm. rapid social mm -hmm. change that in yeah. itself is suspicious. Would you like to hear my? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm very curious what you're going to do with this one. Well. My first course of action after hearing that two friends of mine have both been uh, watching porn and having this kind of strange emptiness is to ask them, what kind of porn are they watching? <laughs> and they are very cagey about it. They say, you know, the regular stuff. So I decide to take a deep dive. I decide to do some research. So I go onto the website and I see ads for, uh, you know, porn games that are going to make you come in five seconds and lonely housewives near you and join this chat to see all manner of things, really, anything that you want to see. And so I go back to them and I, I say, well, I went on there and I, you know, I watched and I partook and I didn't have the same physical and mental reaction that you had. I didn't feel empty. I didn't feel feel physically hurt. So so seriously, what are you what are you looking at? They say you got to check out the NPC category. You got to look at the NPC category. And I say, "Okay, I'll go check that out." And there's a category on this porn site for NPCs, non-player characters, which in video games are just the people who you see standing around who are not controlled by anybody else. They're a computer program and they're there to tell you things like you can, you know, buy food at the corner store or, hey, don't bump into me, that kind of stuff. I open the video and there's a woman who is pretending to be an NPC. She is being fed money every 10 seconds by people who are commanding her to say NPC type lines. She's saying things like, yes, good, and okay, thank you, and right this way, sir, and over there. And the entire time she's doing it, this real woman who's pretending to be an NPC has a piece of popcorn that she's holding in a hair straightener that is threatening to be crushed as she slowly increases the pressure. It is a video that is loaded for maximum dopamine release. And what I realize, what happened to my friends here, watching this, participating in this, sending money to this person, is that there is a train wreck, an impossible collision of the real and the imagined that is simultaneously blowing out the circuits of the real and destroying the imaginal and leaving them dead and pained inside. Wow. Okay. Well, that certainly took the direction. I mean, I, I actually really was uh, hoping it would go in that direction, as you might have 
inferred that it, it links to this, you know, to conspiracy theories and to uh, thought contagion and how ideas move and change behavior. But I really love the grace notes on that. I love the textural fulfillment of the idea all the way through with some really, really nice details. And I think when it came to, uh, you know, the summation punchline of, well, this is what it's about. And I think it needed that. I think that's the kind of premise that it was. And I think you appreciated and, and respected the terms of that and constructed in and around that. I really liked what you said of, of a train wreck, a collision between the real and the imagined. And I think that that was just, uh, I mean, you didn't say cognitive dissonance. There'd be any number of ways you could have said that. But I liked the way that you did say it. And I thought the whole rhythm and structure, the flow of that was really just very solid and satisfying. Cool. No, I'm glad you liked it. That was a really fun one to do. Um, I think that uh, I think that gets to really what's going on with a lot of stuff right now. The collision of the imaginal and the real instead of the integration. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, that's that's a very very important distinction and very clearly and physically stated. I think that's absolutely the point. And it really builds on the tyranny of image, the superfice, a lot of the groundwork that we've laid for this. This is really the problem. It's not integration. It is collision. It's not oscillation or crossing sort of some sort of membrane in an osmotic mm -hmm. way. It's, it is so far from that. And the question is, is that of, does that, is that of necessity? Is there another way? Can things be made not to uh, clash, but to mesh? Or mm -hmm. in some way not have, um, I don't know, a kind, of, a kind of increasingly pointless collision, I, I would suggest, you know? I'd agree. It just, it isn't interesting after a point. And, you know, uh, Robert Anton Wilson said, if it, if it, if it's fun, it could be true, you know, and I really think that that's a very good way to think about things. A variation on that would be if it's interesting, you know, it might be worth thinking that, about. Yeah. That that's might it. be, you know, criterion enough. I mean, that's, I think yeah. it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty big category, uh, but if it's not interesting, and I don't even think we need to say, well, to you, I think that's implicit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not interesting. Well, I'm not sure if anything else said is going to make any difference. That's how important it is. Right. I'm a big fan of Alan Watts, as you know, and his famous articulation of what reality even is from a Taoist perspective is God playing hide and seek with himself. Mm -hmm. And creating all of these uh, people through which to see his own creation and to hide from himself because it's interesting. I'm also reminded of the, the show Hannibal that Rios and I just watched about Hannibal Lecter. I know I've brought it up every show. Yeah, you're a huge it's, fan. It, it's so good. It's so good. 
and uh hannibal during the show will occasionally do inexplicable things that will leave people baffled and also several people dead and whenever he's asked why he did that he'll say i wanted to see what would happen and (laughs) i think that's it man you know maybe maybe not from a you know cannibalistic serial killer perspective but interest you know god playing hide and seek from himself wanting to see what happens these are the fundamental characteristics and perhaps that might even be tie into our next episode with how to get at the fundamentals of this because i think if we can get people to understand interest and curiosity as a virtue over everything else i really think a lot of this will suss itself out i agree particularly if people really have both some confidence and and true authority in arriving at this notion of of what's interesting because i think that some people uh this is a great way to start a kind of new new phase actually it's it's so it's it's fruitful enough to to really uh extend because people will go well yeah there are a lot of people just aren't interested in anything you know they just say well i'm not interested in that and they dismiss you know and there there absolutely is that and and you're going to experience that from a teaching point of view Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. a lot of cool stuff here there is Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but i think that's a good place to uh to leave that i really i thought your response to uh the challenge was was really uh, satisfying was the word I used, and I'm going to repeat it. Cool. I'm really glad to hear that. Do you have a tool and a tip for us? I do, and I think that, uh, you know, we all have an accounts department. I, I, was, I was engaged with mine uh, paying bills this afternoon, and it made me very grumpy. You know, but satisfied, but grumpy. So we all have an accounts department. We have a customer service department. We have to. But I'm suggesting that we as individuals, as psyches, uh, really remember the importance of R&D, research and development. And I think we need to get to that idea and really have fun with that uh, as an ongoing practice in how we manage our multi-celled psyches but i wanted to give some clues about how to do this and i i think i'm gonna in some ways the memory and alertness book is is a sort of a litany uh of of suggestions in this regard but i wanted just to share two one in particular for instance i i think you could and this is very relevant to our listenership there are thinking reading curious people Maybe have one central question for a certain period of time. You know, see how long it, it, it holds its interest to you. But I might suggest the question, how does quantity of data influence quality of understanding? Just have that philosophical sort of question. It's pretty basic. Have that just running around in, you know, in the background and think of it from time to time and maybe make a journal or voice memo, note of it and, I don't know. It's just a the idea is to have some central focus for your R&D at any given point. Here's another one, which is um, a variation on a tool that we've often talked about of rejigging known phrases or uh, ideas or concepts or images. 
Rejig Heraclitus. We've been talking about Heraclitus slightly, you know, the Panta Ray is what his idea was in Greek. Uh, the idea of you can't step in the same river twice because the waters are ever flowing on. Well, what about this restatement? Can you sleep in the same bed twice? Sorry, question there. Okay, now I think here's what's interesting about this. We don't have the inherent a priori definition problem of a river continuously flowing water. That's what a river is. And yet we still have the unique moment constant novelty, evolving universe conundrum. So, and this is really cool. Stick with me. This may be a new way to think about Heraclitus's river scenario. Consider, do we want to spend time arguing that the bed is different moment to moment or night to night? Now, in practical terms, I don't think we would or do. I think we resolve the evolving universe enigma by conceding that we are different. We are the more apparent emblem of change. Okay, this is cool. Going back to Heraclitus, I think this is now a handy way of putting ourselves back into the river. The problem isn't the flow of the river, it's which river we've hypnotized by. There we go. Did that get through? I mean, I when I thought of that, I thought, you know, because I go down to the Colorado River, you know, and I think about that, this, you know, the same river twice. What is the definition? And yet we always take ourselves out of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about when, even when we're standing up to our groins in the river, where we've really merged with the river, we have a hard time really putting ourselves into that scenario. So by looking at it from a more mundane thing of, well, can you sleep in the same bed? Well, the bed's not as interesting as a river. It's not changing that fast. And, so we re we emphasize ourselves and we suddenly, I think if we could follow that discipline, this tool of rejigging these famous ideas, analogies, metaphors, and in some cases, cliches, they've, they've become so successful. If we rejig them, we might see things very differently and get that, that renewed perspective on ourselves, the hiders and seekers, God playing hide and seek. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea. Um, so with that as a fairly complex tool, my tip is really simple. And it, as always, it's an admonition to myself. No matter what is happening, no matter even the depression, make something every day. Yes. Something. I, I can't say how important I think that premise is. You can be as humble as you like in terms of what is made. But I'm talking of two, generally speaking, creative, curious people. And I, I mean something that fits that into that frame or under that rubric. And even if it's just completely insignificant, it's still, it, it fulfills a creed and a credo 
and it will it will make you feel better you know blues is the healer i think that forcing yourself to make something is that positive achievable heroism that we're all capable of i think that's the best tool and tip combo you've ever done uh i like both of them separately and they would have been great on their own or with lesser uh doubles but combined i think they they also they flow on to each other too there's a connection between the tool and the tip and well, I'm glad you say that because I am, I, you know, that is kind of my hope. It doesn't always work. And I interesting you think this is maybe, a, you know, the best mesh or mix yet. Because I, I really do like that idea. I think that's my idea of how they should work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just the idea of the, of, of the river being this kind of continuous flow. And are we even looking at the, at the right thing? And should we be looking at the you in the you who steps into the river? And then that you being someone who creates something every day and that being really your only task here while you're here to manipulate things and be manipulated by them and maybe question what thing it is that you are manipulating. It's a very holistic tool and tip combo that I think could be listened back to. It's a very short, it's about 15 minutes Go back and listen to it again. That's what I would encourage people to do. Go listen to what Chris said, starting from the tool through the tip. And I was quiet because I think it needed to be said in full. Well, I didn't know what you were going to say for the tip, but I had a psychic feeling that I should just let that flow on. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate hearing that 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 seemed to really work together. because it did feel very organic to me. And I, I think that this is kind of, I appreciate this opportunity to share some of this process because this is obviously stuff that I'm thinking about in the in terms of the memory and alertness book. And I find that the, the, the thinking really opens up a whole bunch of other channels that uh, I won't share yet because I just, I think they're kind of in that uh, still birthing you know, morphing phase, but this is really cool. I really appreciate that opportunity to share them and to, and to get that feedback. You know, I think this is one of the things that uh, not to harken too much back to the COVID topic, but one of the things that, that I really took away was that the no live music events and everyone who I know is who's connected with music truly uh, as in professionally, talks about the importance of live performance and sharing ideas and sharing models. So I really appreciate um, sharing the tools and tips. And I really mean them and take them seriously. And the other thing is I'm always really struggling to apply them myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's, you know, I want to be righteous in that. I really do. I don't want to in any way pretend that I, I've got any of these things under control. They are very hard disciplines to enact, as simple as I try to craft them in terms of uh, the explanation or description. I Nothing is simple in the doing, you know, nothing it makes more- life more fun, though. It yes, really it does. does. Having yes, it those does. hard tasks in front of you that you can remind yourself of 
when you're going to the kitchen to get yourself a spoonful of peanut butter or having a toddler scream at you, it's fun to think about these things and say, hmm, considering all of the practical challenges that I'm facing in this current moment, it would be fun to experience a challenge of my own choosing. Yeah, well, that may be the ultimate life for people of creativity, curiosity, and courage, is -hmm. to be able to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's, to me, that's a lovely description of heroic, uh, but fortunate, very fortunate life. Yeah, I always, I think of a boat rocked about by a tempestuous sea. And how a lot of people seem to live their lives that way, just pinging from stimulus to stimulus. Today, I felt a real disdain for what I call, uh, uh, I call woke people addicts now, because I think addict is a better term for them than any anything that even resembles somebody adhering to a coherent ideology. It's a it's an addict. It's a person yeah. who's yeah. I, I I see what you're saying. I, I yeah. that's yeah. It's it's not yes. I understand the, the the tonal shift there. Sure. So, when I thought about that again, I think of this boat just being rocked, being rocked, being rocked. And then uh, Rios and I watched uh, two Spielberg movies this weekend. We watched Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind which are both, of course, fantastic movies, really great movies. And uh, just in Jaws, where the the fish is attacking the boat, I think of that as a counter to this tiny little raft being swept about by storms and things out of their control. And this old beat-up trawler that's fighting a huge prehistoric shark and I'm like, that's the cooler way to live, right? Yeah. That's the the shark hunter, Quint and uh Brody and the other guy. I forget his name. But um, you know, these addicts, these woke people, uh, the ideologues and all that kind of stuff, there's their existence seems so unagented and empty and and just smelly and foul because they have to be (laughs) because they they have to be they have to be dragged by the dog collar in whatever direction the winds of the day tell them to go and so you know engaging in a little bit of this imaginative challenge and uh it it, it's it, it is really a properly agentifying experience that people should uh embark upon wow oh my that just made me laugh (laughs) (laughs) all right well uh dream time dream time dream time you know and i think that the uh i've certainly got out of my nightmare phase and as i said that was quite unusual i consulted my dream index and saw how fortunately how uh very distinct that was but the the heat at night and it's just it I, I I feel sort of jumbled dreams, but three come to mind that have very distinctive qualities, and this ties in with with some of my renewed uh, conspiracy theory interest love. Not that I really needed to have that renewed, 
but it also ties back to our looking at photography and our looking at architecture. I've seen to, I've been watching some old 1970s TV shows, Starsky and Hutch and uh, Barnaby Jones. And I notice how often the locations reoccur. They're like the characters. It's very mm-hmm. dreamlike. And I started to get some real dream recurrence of the architectures. And so we're really, one of the things that's really important is we're always getting L.A., and to some extent, New York, which often at that period seemed to mean uh, either Midtown or Lower Manhattan mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of just. So this architecture theme starts working through my dreams. And the first one is just on the edge of nightmare. It's, it's an anxiety dream that makes me grit my teeth. I'm in a luxury apartment owned by Sting who I actually do like Sting's voice sometimes, but I, he's emblematic of a loathing, I feel. And it does relate back to a story of when he was touring Australia and a personal encounter. But that's kind of too long ago and was too random. I'm not going to hold anyone to account for that. There's just something about Sting that I don't like. <laughs> and there's a lot that I don't like about this uh, luxury uh, high-rise apartment in Manhattan. It sort of shifts over the course of this first dream from a Central Park uh, view to somewhere more Soho-ish, Tribeca. But it is an ultra-modernized apartment in terms of decor and finish, which doesn't seem to, it's not what I thought Sting would be doing. But of course, he owns millions of properties, and this is just where we're recording. But anyway, I'm sitting in with a group of professional musicians, not really, I mean, why am I, you know, there's no way that I'm up to that level at all. And we are creating an absolutely awful song about a little girl. I think it's some sort of uh, foster child that he's adopted into his enormous wealth. And the name Maeve, M-A-V-E, comes up. But I'm just so sickened by Sting. And the f- there, it's the light pouring in. There's too much light in this apartment. It's, it's violated some sort of symmetry of sanctuary and view. It's going too much to exposure. I instantly move into a dream about my principal ex-wife, one of them, and the small town situation in Australia and the problems that emerged when the divorce took place of, you know, neighbors taking sides. But then that schism, that explosion being a way of seeing into the lives and interiors of the small town. So this dream ripples out into a David Lynchian soap opera. But the crucial element is at one moment, I discover that my former wife now has a penis. So that then triggers 
what could be related to one of my lifetime, well, adult life anxiety dreams around one particular landlord when I had my warehouse studio in Melbourne. I think I've talked about him. Very gifted dude. He was a metal sculptor, but he was a Vietnam vet and heroin addict on again, off again, and he was nuts. Well, this ties back into my architectural theme because I'm moving house under urgent circumstances. So I've somehow jumped from the uh, Australian small town David Lynch soap opera with the ex having a penis to a kind of vintage version of L.A., very distinctive, heavily drawing on these TV shows and some classic older Hollywood apartments and, you know, a real montage of, of L.A. scenes like the Bradbury Building. Uh, from Blade Runner and from millions of shows, that beautiful Art Deco building that you've probably seen a hundred million times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in order to make this move happen, I have to let this somewhat psychotic landlord, this archetypal landlord figure of mine, know where I'm moving to because somehow... He's an, he owns the moving company. And a woman I'm dealing with gives that fact away. And I have to make a decision. Do I make this move? I'm not clear on why I need to do it, but I need to do it quickly. Or is it worth somehow uh, putting that off because I don't want my landlord to know? And I realize I don't have a choice. I have to go. I have to let. And I wake up on that note. So just inching back into uh, anxiety, into, you know, distress territory, just on the edge. Perfect. I like that. I like that a lot. Sting, girlfriend with a penis, landlord anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, and I was could, listening. I'm going to, I'm going to put this in the episode. I'm actually going to do a bit of editing. I'm going to put the opening Val, uh, 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 Vangelis soundtrack to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner while you're telling that story. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. That's appropriate. That's appropriate. But yeah, that's well, cool. All right. That was, that was a wrap, man. You, I, I knew I did. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I think it was, it was, you know, I think you're right. I really do. I really do. Yeah. I think that was a really fun episode uh, for me. Thanks everybody for listening. I, I do get, uh, I do see red when it comes to COVID and I am, I'm working on getting to a point where I can speak about it without becoming violently angry, but I'm not there yet. I'll get there, but I'm not there yet. I fair enough. Fair enough. You know, fair enough. Mm -hmm. I think that to be on the way as the Buddhists say, you know? Yep. I'm on the way. Yeah.